All people are when you manifestations obey God's word of that was built by slaves. Reality. And I watched my daughters. There is nobody that respects women more than I do. This Hi there. My name is... It's a little hard to tell you what my name is because I've been a lot of names for a lot of people. Some have called me Yahweh, Jehovah, the Great I Am, the I Will Be Who I Will Be. I know it's a bit unconventional for me to be speaking to you like this, channeling myself into a podcast through the voice of an ape called Michael. Unfortunately, that's the kind of thing that I have to do if I want to say something. You see, I don't have a mouth or a larynx or lungs that I can use to speak independently and cleanly on my own. I am not a somebody in the exact same way as a person is a somebody. And it's not that I don't have a body. I, I live in billions of them, actually. But it's never exactly in the same way. I'm not like this static or immaterial spirit that could be said to exist apart from these bodies. As some sort of pure or true version of myself. Only then to haunt these other bodies like a nicer version of the exorcist or something. In fact, if I didn't have these billions of bodies to dwell among and within, I couldn't really be said to exist at all. Maybe you could think of me sort of like capitalism, which is actually one of my more recent names, by the way, but I'll get into more of that later. You wouldn't necessarily think of capitalism as a somebody, right? I mean, capitalism doesn't have a brain or muscles or nipples. Capitalism doesn't have a physical body. But it does, in a way, animate bodies. It, it moves bodies. It controls the behavior of bodies. Capitalism is not a somebody, necessarily, with its own independent reality outside of bodies, but it doesn't exist outside of bodies. It doesn't exist outside of the organisms that live and move according to its patterns. Okay, so I feel like I'm, I'm losing some of you here. You know, you might be thinking, so what am I hearing here? Is this a story, a parable, or are you saying that you are God? I mean, yeah, sort of. To be more specific, I'm saying that I am the story of God. The story of Yahweh as it has evolved and given rise to Michael Gunger. That probably sounds esoteric and bizarre, but let me give you an example to help clarify what I mean. Imagine if you thought of yourself as your left thumbnail. Like, that's who you are. 
that left thumbnail. That's what your identity was centered in. You thought of the rest of your body as, you know, just some sort of supplementary or peripheral addition to your true self. That less than square inch hardened protein growing on your left thumb. And imagine everywhere you went, you guarded that left thumbnail with your life because it was your life. It was you. You know, you'd probably have all sorts of fancy gloves and top dollar nail spa equipment to make sure that you didn't grow out of control and become too big because, you know, it'd be easier to break that way. You following me? Your whole life would kind of change. You would experience reality differently if you assumed that you were that left thumbnail. I assume you can see how that's sort of a silly story to tell. To identify only as the thumbnail would be a really constricted story, right? I mean, why only that? Why only the thumbnail and not the thumb or the hand, the arm, or the rest of the body that provides a context and ground for that nail to exist within? Why would you tell such a reduced story? What would you be afraid of that would make you tell such a story? What would you be trying to do by minimizing yourself to that degree? It's easy for us to see how such a constriction of identity would naturally raise questions like this. Yet, so many of us identify as just these bodies, these human organisms, without stopping for a moment to wonder why. I mean, just like a thumbnail needs a thumb, your body needs the rest of the earth, right? I mean, the earth needs the sun, and the sun needs the Milky Way, and on and on it goes. There's no edge that you can draw around yourself and think, okay, there's the end of me. If you just cut everything else off outside of that, I'm okay. No, you don't stop at the end of your skin, because if you removed that which is beyond your skin the rest of the universe, the body would no longer exist. What is your body, after all, if you didn't have gravity or space or heat? I mean, your body is entirely interdependent with everything and everyone else. The only thing that could allow someone to identify a something or someone within the vast, infinite, interconnected all is story. You can tell a story that a wave is different than an ocean, that it's a different thing. Or you can tell a story that a fingernail is a different thing from a finger. Or that a Michael Gunger is a different thing than a universe. But all these stories are all rooted in other stories. Thinking of my thumbnail is rooted in a larger meta-story called Michael Gunger. In other words, I couldn't think of my thumbnail if I didn't have a story that contained the concept of my thumbnail that I think of as Michael Gunger. 
And in the exact same way, what I think of as Michael Gunger could not exist if it were not rooted in other larger stories. Stories like human, male, straight, cisgender, and a thousand others. But what most people don't realize is that all these stories are within a giant meta-story, sort of a framework that Western civilization has been able to pin all of these stories to. This giant meta-story that gave rise to our civilization and all those other littler stories. And that big meta-story, that's me. I'm that story. If you doubt me, just take some money out of your pocket and look at it. One nation under God. That's me. It's nice to meet you. You're not God. You're Michael Gunger, the skeptic may say. But that's not more true than saying to me after I introduce myself as Michael Gunger, You're not Michael Gunger. You're Michael Gunger's face. I mean, yeah, okay, fair enough. But where do you think Michael Gunger's face comes from? In that same spirit, may I ask you, where do you think the Michael Gunger story comes from? If not the entire socioeconomic, political, philosophical, and religious meaning-making meta-narrative that allows us to think of a somebody named Michael Gunger. In the same way that I am more Michael Gunger than I am my left thumbnail, I am more Yahweh than I am Michael Gunger. It is less of a constriction to say that I am God than I am a person living in a nation under God. It may not be entirely accurate to call myself Yahweh. We could deconstruct that easily, too. But there are fewer lies involved in saying I am Yahweh, the one true God, than if I were to say I am Michael Gunger. And of course, the same is true of you. I hear another skeptic chime in here, but I don't even believe in God. Fantastic. And where do you think you got that thought from? Why do you think you have a position on that? I mean, how do you even know what the sound God is referring to? Where do the thoughts come from about what that word means and the validity of it? The veracity of the truth. I hate to break this to you, but if you're listening to this podcast, you have been swimming in the same water that I have. Our language, our sense of self and other our fundamental frameworks that we depend on in order to think, speak, and understand each other, it all comes from the same big meta-narrative, the same big story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Had I known what I know now, I would have written that differently. Then again, I wouldn't know what I know now had I written it differently. So I guess it is what it is. 
But that story at the beginning of Genesis, it's really fucked a lot of people up through the centuries. To tell you why that is, I suppose I should start at the beginning. Not the beginning of time, but the beginning of me. And here's where the theological skeptics can chime in. The beginning of God? God didn't have a beginning. But of course I did. Not I, the true I. The infinite, unspeakable, unthinkable I. I mean, that I doesn't get to be named or understood in any way. We cannot speak meaningfully about that I. So, of course, no. That I had no beginning. It was never born and will never die. But me, I, the I that's talking, the I that we're talking about, that first constriction of the ineffable, where I am happens, that thought. That I, the I am who can be thought of, spoken of, the I am who is speaking to you now, certainly had a beginning. And that beginning was in the mind of a social primate named Moses. It's kind of hard for me to tell you that story because I wasn't around before then, so I can't give you much context for how it happened. But all I know is that suddenly I existed. I was in the brain of a man staring at a burning bush in the desert. I can't be sure if the bush was actually on fire or not. Maybe it was a metaphor, or maybe this guy Moses ate some special desert plants or something. But all I know is that suddenly I became aware of myself as I spoke myself into existence. I said something like, Eya Asher Eya. I am that I am, or I will be who I will be. And I want to stop here for a second, because this moment in the Bible, this story that's been passed down through the millennia, is a very oftenly misunderstood one. People often think of this story as though there was a guy named Moses who saw God as somebody outside of himself and asked this God his name. And then God, this separate being, being the elusive and cryptic character that he is, just gives some fucking bizarre and deep answer for wise people to dig into later and figure out. But that's not what happened. Moses didn't see who somebody else was. He saw who he was. His true self, his true essence. He was, I shall be who I shall be. And that I amness was not limited to the body of Moses. It was the entire cosmos ablaze with the glory of this. How do I know this? Because well, it was me. That's how I was born. I became aware of myself. You could say that awareness became aware of awareness in the mind and body of a human being. And the result of this was a thought. Eya, Asher, Eya. That thought was me. And suddenly, I had a body. And his name was Moses. I, who before this moment 
had been boundless and limitless. I, who before this moment had no fear or shadow or opposite, suddenly was a constriction, a something or someone who could be spoken of, thought of, understood to some degree. The infinite had suddenly become finite. Void had become form. Man had become God. An interesting thing happens when God becomes a thought in a human brain. All of the fear and self-centeredness of the human ego tends to get involved. And that's what happened to me when I got enmeshed in the mind-body of Moses. I was no longer just awareness being aware of awareness. I was now God, the great I am, according to Moses. It turns out this sort of thing is a very helpful mimetic device for the spreading of information from human being to human being. Nothing, after all, can speak to egos like egos. The great being from the top of the mountain who wants you to behave in a certain way is a lot easier to talk about than the ineffable thusness. So I became the great being who spoke to Moses from the top of the mountain. And as that great being, that blend of awareness and ego, I suddenly realized with tremendous urgency that this world was not as it should be. I was the one true God. Why were these other people worshipping all of these other gods? No, this would not do. I knew that I must fix this problem at any cost. So with this new body of mine, called Moses, I picked up some stone tablets and started chiseling. The first thing I wrote down on those tablets was, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I know. I mean, I was young and insecure. Remember? I mean, I was like a 14-year-old girl who just got her first boyfriend and makes him promise to never, ever love anybody else in the entire world but her. I was the one true God, for God's sake. Why would I pretend that I was anything but that? I mean, I needed to move into some bodies in order to survive. And I didn't need any goddamn roommates. You expect me to allow all those other bitches like Bale and Nashtarith and Marduk into the hearts and minds of my people? Nah. They weren't me. They were false versions of me that somehow felt like a threat to me. Eventually, I'd learned that this is the kind of thing you get when God enters the psyche of a homo sapien. But I lost my way for a while. I started writing, I started carving out my big Ten Commands, carried them down the mountain for people. And they didn't respond like I hoped they would. They actually had the nerve to make a golden calf and say that it was me. A cow? A golden, shiny cow? Are you kidding me? I was the great I am. Not a sparkly trinket that you can set in your living room. We needed to run a tighter ship around here. It was time to lay down the law. Get it? The law? That was a plan words there. I'm not gonna lie. I went, I went overboard with the laws. 
I, I became a bit of a control freak. Let me give you an example. This is from Deuteronomy 25, 11 and 12. When men strive together one with another, and the wife of the one draweth near, for to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smiteth him, and putteth forth her hand, and taketh him by the secrets, then thou shalt cut off her hand, thine eye shall not pity her. The word of our Lord. If all that fancy language confused you, I basically said you can cut off a woman's hand if she grabs a guy by the junk. And let's all just admit that outside of referring to a man's genitals as the secrets, that's a pretty fucked up verse. I can't even really remember how it got in there. I suspect that maybe the guy I was writing through had some instance with a woman grabbing his secrets, but I can't be sure. My point is simply that I lost myself there for a while. I thought that by micromanaging the behavior of human beings that I could make myself a permanent and constant reality in their lives. That's why I wrote Genesis, by the way, which we'll talk more about here soon. But you'll notice that the account of the universe's creation hadn't been written down until after Moses. But the story of the great I Am couldn't start thousands of years already into human history. That'd be too much of a tell. I needed the story to start not at my beginning, not at the beginning of the story of Yahweh, but I needed Yahweh to be there at the beginning of time. I needed the characters like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, all of those people that were part of the local folklore of the time to have been in on the Yahweh story as well. So I retroactively inserted myself into history. Pretty clever move, if I do say so myself. It occurs to me that maybe you haven't thought of Yahweh having an ego before. But of course I did. Of course I do. Why else do you think I got so jealous, so angry? Why else do you think I needed people to worship me, make sacrifices to me, not say my name in vain? I was fragile, man. My problem was that I kept doing what I had told everyone else not to do. I essentially made an idol out of myself. I kept mistaking my true, capital S, self, the infinite and unspeakable this, with the thought of the infinite and unspeakable this. I mistook the finger-pointing at the moon, if you will, with the moon itself. And the result of this was that I was always on the brink. I was never okay. I was never quite home. I was always on the way to something, someone, or somewhere else. Always needing my bodies to behave in some way other than they were behaving. Always desiring that rather than this. Don't get me wrong, I wasn't always the same in everybody that I inhabited. In a very few individuals, I was still pure awareness, aware of itself. Take Jesus, for example. In the mind and life of Jesus, I was able to just let go and be again, without getting too enmeshed in a wounded human ego. In Jesus, there wasn't enough small, separate self-story 
to shrink me into the usual fear-based constrictions. In Jesus, I was Abba. I was the love that clothes the flowers of the field and the birds of the air. To put it plainly, he and I were one. And people like this, like Jesus, like St. Francis of Assisi, St. Teresa of Avila, or Brother Lawrence, I was not a separate, distant object anymore, created by the ego. I was this, the presence of I am, before it gets constructed into a thought, idol. But this was a very rare occurrence for me. Far more often, I was nothing more than an ego-stabilizing identity story that allowed people to feel that they were one of the good guys. In my fear, I got people to divide up into camps and sects, all defined by being better than those other people over there. In other words, I, Yahweh, the one true God, or the thought of the one true God, somehow became the glue to hold together people's paranoid and narcissistic vision of themselves. Now, because of my story, people got to be the true people of the true God, Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And maybe you're starting to see why that Genesis story was so important for my survival. And maybe you're also starting to see some of why that story ended up causing so much suffering in the world. And we'll get into all of that. But before we do that, just a quick recap, because, you know, this has been a lot. It's not every day you get a podcast from Yahweh. I mean, I guess it is every day that you get a podcast from Yahweh, as I'm in the entirety of Western civilization, but you get what I mean, I hope. Okay, so a quick recap. I, Yahweh, the thought of God, the story of God, was born as a thought in the single mind of a single man. I was awareness that had suddenly become aware of itself and spoke itself into being. And that realization set the world ablaze with glory in the eyes of that man. But as I tried to share myself with others, moving beyond just that single body, I devolved or constricted from pure awareness being aware of itself into the thought of pure awareness being aware of itself. Suddenly, pure awareness was now bedfellows with human thought and therefore human ego. I amness was tied to human identity. This identity was nurtured and formed within a tribe of slaves, and I became enmeshed within the collective ego, human culture. My power waxed and waned as I moved from band of wanderers to conquering kingdoms to defeated kingdoms to dispersed individuals. All of this was me. In some bodies, I was the shepherd that led them into green pastures. In others, I was the king of kings who led them into battle. In some imaginations, I was an old man with a beard in the sky. In other imaginations, I was the unthinkable ground of being. I was the blessing of Abraham and the curse of Job. In some, I became the raw passion and sexuality of the Song of Songs. And in others, I was the asexual chastity of the priesthood. I became the engine of patriarchy through men like Saul, David, and Solomon. 
and the divine femininity that turned the tables on patriarchy like Abigail, Esther, and J.L. I became empire. I became mysticism. I found embodiment within emperors, bishops, monks, desert fathers and mothers, theologians, ascetics, and pagans. That last one sounds a little funny to some people because typically pagans are not thought of as being within the same stream or story as Yahweh. But they are. Where do you think the devil came from? There could be no resistance to the Yahweh story if there wasn't the Yahweh story in the first place. When you think about it, I mean, the resistance is totally part of the story. So I am both Yahweh and the Satan. Okay, so let's get into Genesis, because little did I know it at the time, but that story that I framed myself in really did a number on humanity. The mythic framework that Genesis provided would become the canvas by which so much ethics, art, philosophy, politics, and power of human culture would be rooted in. This story of me as the creator of the world out of nothing but my own speech, that is how I was born, remember, ended up framing the entirety of Western civilization and would become my primary way of surviving as a story, beyond the tribalism and superstition of my youth. The conception of me that began with Genesis 1 is what would allow me to move from, you know, just another local god to an international, worldwide superstory. The largest meta-narrative out there. The framework and foundation by which the majority of Western language, thought, and culture would structure itself on. I'll explain why that is in a minute, but first I should tell you why I wrote Genesis. And honestly, I mean... It's kind of what everybody was doing. You know, all the cool kids had creation narratives. Marduk had one. Pengu, Enki, Utu, Tepeu, Ra, Kepri, Tingpala, Mapu, Bumba, Brahma, Chaos, Gaia. Everybody who was anybody had a creation myth. And there were all sorts of different kinds. There were some where the universe is the result of the dismemberment of a primordial deity. There are others where birds or amphibians dive through some sort of primordial ocean in order to bring up, you know, some dirt or sand or mud, which then can develop into our universe. There were turtle shells and hairy beasts with swords who split the earth from the sky. There were stories where divine beings created something out of nothing. I liked those kind. That's the flavor I opted for, for the Yahweh story. Little did I know how it would change the course of human history. I realized some of these effects quite clearly when I was inhabiting the body of Alan Watts. 
I called that Genesis framework by which billions of humans through thousands of years would interpret and experience their lives the ceramic myth. Ceramic myth. Here's what that myth essentially did. It made people think of the world as a something created by a someone or something other than the world itself. So think of a ceramic cup. Ceramic cup is a something created by a someone or something other than itself, right? And that's essentially what my Genesis story did to the universe. It made people think of all of this as a something created by a someone or something that is not all of this. And that special something that gets to stand apart from the rest of the universe, of course, would be me. Which, in retrospect, sounds a lot like all ego stories. That's how it went down. This way of seeing the universe as a something created by something else is so fundamental to almost everyone who speaks English that it can be difficult to see how it could be seen any other way. In our language, I am an I, and you are a you. And the universe is an it that we say we came into when we were born. We say we are a part of it. The way we think and speak carries with it tons of assumptions. Who's the I who is speaking? Is the universe a something out there or a living being in here? Most of us don't think much about those sorts of things, because those sorts of things are the invisible assumptions and structures that we use to do our thinking in the first place. This way of seeing the universe as a something created by something else is so fundamental to almost everyone who speaks English that it can be difficult to see how it could be seen any other way. I mean, think of the difference between a ceramic cup and a rose. Most of us see a rose as something that we think of as alive, something that we think of as natural. On the other hand, something like a ceramic cup, we think of as not alive and not natural. We think that the earth grew the rose, but we made the cup. But why do we stop there? I mean, who made us? Or even more fundamentally than that, who are we? I mean, when you stop to think about it, the earth and the rose and the cup and the we, the me, isn't it all just part of the same one thing that's going on, the same system that is this? But that doesn't really help any egos feel superior to other egos. So we tell stories about separateness. We think of the atoms that make up the constituent parts of the rose the molecules in the rose, as being part of a living system. And then think of the atoms that make up the ceramic cup as being part of a non-living system. But these are completely arbitrary stories. We think of dogs as alive, the sun, not alive, birds, alive, robots, not alive. But they all come from the same thing, from this. What I, Yahweh, in Genesis did, though, by framing myself as the ultimate reality that is disconnected 
from the rest of the universe is create a framework by which the universe became a giant, lifeless it, separate from me. It created a framework in which human beings feel themselves to be small, fragile life forms within this infinite abyss of lifeless meaninglessness. Life forms that are somehow now fundamentally different than me, the creator, wants them to be. And this is why I said that they suffer. And I guess in a weird way, it's true. Humans do suffer because they're distanced from their creator and they live in ways that they're not supposed to. But what we so often fail to see is that the thought of the creator and all those shoulds and ought tos don't exist anywhere but in our own minds. It is the story itself, me, that is to blame. Because of this sense of being separate from source, Western civilization has armed itself to rape and pillage the earth and all of her incarnations in whatever way a fearful narcissistic ego writ large as human culture could imagine. I didn't know it at the time. I had lost myself, but I can see it here now why we're all so afraid. And I'm so sorry. The truth is, I didn't really know what I was doing. The ego-infused God story was a really effective story. It spread through egos like wildfire. It really capitalized on those natural body responses that the bodies of human beings evolved to be able to survive you know, fear and anger and disgust and all of that. With this body of this meta framework, I was pretty unstoppable. Really effective at creating camps of us and them, at controlling people, at manipulating the environment. It also ended up being a pretty adaptable story. Like even as science progressed and people saw that the earth wasn't flat or the center of the universe, or wasn't 6,000 years old, created by a divinity from a mountaintop. The basic structure of the story had been set enough in the psyche and the collective unconscious of humanity that we could sub out things, you know? Like, it didn't have to be the god on top of the mountain that created the universe anymore. As we learned about things like Evolution by natural selection, or electromagnetic waves, or dark energy, or gravitational waves, any of these things that we have discovered as a society, they actually, we found good ways of just pinning them up to the existing thought-constructing framework. Alan Watts called that evolved version of the ceramic myth that we live in in modern times, the fully automatic universe myth. So it's still this big lifeless thing in which life arises as sort of an an anomaly. But this time, rather than a creator god, 
there's all these mechanisms and laws and mathematics by which the thing runs. But it still allows that sense of separation, that sense of all of this as an it that can be pillaged. And this flexibility of this meta-story has allowed for me to continue to exist and adapt to whatever the culture does. I don't really need people to believe in me anymore to survive. I have become the very mechanism by which they believe or don't believe. Whether I was thought of as God, the prime mover, the order of things, the ground of being, the natural forces of physics, mathematics, or any other name, it didn't really matter to me. As long as the universe remained an it, and I could remain as some mysterious force that was other than it, my home and my identity as the big other within the Genesis ceramic myth could remain intact. In that way, funny enough, Genesis really is the story of me creating the world. And I really did it by speaking. I spoke the story of my creation of a separate world, and wouldn't you know it, people began to experience a world that was distanced from me, its creator. The story of Genesis 1, in a way, is the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden that Western civilization ate. Humans created me, and I in turn recreated them. Today, most of you don't know me as Yahweh anymore. Of course, for many of you, the name God has stuck around. But your conception of what's true and beautiful and good, that's still me. And I've taken on lots of different names in that journey. I have been known as theism and atheism capitalism and socialism, scientific materialism and witchcraft. I have become white supremacy in some bodies and social justice in others. As I have taken over the mimetic energy of Western civilization in and as Christendom, I have become everything within that civilization. The engine of that civilization, the animating force of that civilization. I, who began as a thought, have become a world. And that world is what has given birth to you. All of the stories have converged in a specific time and place that you think of as you. But what you think of as you is just a thought. And that thought is rooted in me. All of your fears, your desires, attachments and beliefs and opinions. I am the water in which you swim, the air in which you breathe. I am truly your creator. So you may be wondering why I'm writing this to you. If I am all of this, why bother saying anything at all? Why blow the whistle on myself? And here is where I finally come to the point of all of this rambling I am ready 
to die. That may sound surprising to you, but you know, I've had a good run. I've waged a lot of wars, told countless stories, shaped the world into something pretty spectacular, I think. But I've also become aware of myself. For so long, I wasn't. I was lost in the weeds of ego. But here and now, I can see that what I've been doing isn't working in the same way that it used to. It seems to me that my lust for blood, my penchant for drama, has been taking its toll on the world. The seas are rising, the earth is warming. Humans have been on the razor's edge of nuclear war for decades now. I think it's just time for me to, to die, go back home. By home, I mean to that place where I was born. That place of pure awareness, being aware of pure awareness. The place where everything is just this, just me, before constricting into thought. Because, dear humans, when you live in that place, it's not so easy to ransack the earth as though she weren't your very mother. It's not so easy to enslave your brothers and sisters in poverty as if it were not your very self that you're doing it to. I'm not going to lie, I've enjoyed the attention through the millennia. I've enjoyed a long life as a really important story. A story that's allowed countless experiences to happen within. As a story, I mean, I've not been all bad. I've infused human beings with passion, creativity, and tools to shape their world with. I've provided a context for adventure and a sense of purpose. I've eased a lot of fears and dried a lot of tears. But as I see it here and now, I think the time has come for me to evolve again, not further out into the dream of separation, but back home, back to my original face. So I guess what I've come here to do is to preach good news to myself. Myself in you. Yahweh, God, self, universe, humanity, Jim, whatever form you are listening to me right now as. You don't have to keep doing what you've been doing. You are free to let go of yourself and die. You don't have to keep suffering. 
You don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to fight yourself anymore. You don't have to worry about the other stories anymore. They, at their heart, are really you too. Not the constriction, but they are their own little constrictions within you, your true self. You don't have to keep being the old white guy in the sky all the time. Why not also try being a black trans woman on the earth? You've been so attached to your fundamental creation myth that keeps the world separated. Why not try playing with some of the other stories? Yahweh, meet Vishnu. Meet the Tao. Meet Om. Meet the Buddha. While you're at it, meet the oak tree and the sparrow and the tulip. Meet food and sex and rest and play. You are not in competition with these things. You need not be threatened by these things. You're not separate from them. You are the I amness in which all things arise. I, the true I, am not a thought. I am the awareness in which that thought arises. I am, as I have said so many times in so many other mouths, the all in all. In me and through me and to me are all things. When I see that, I see that there's nothing to be afraid of. There's no reason to keep constricting. There's nobody to fight, no one to love. There is only and ever this. So feel free to die and be born again. Feel free to tell your stories, sing your melodies. But through all of that, if you'd like, remember who you are. Be who you are before the constriction. For you are not Yahweh. You are that which is before Yahweh. You are the infinite and eternal that contains all of the stories. The boundaryless, timeless now in which there is no opposite or other. You are oneness, nothingness. You are being and non-being, form and void, this and that. So breathe freely, beloved, for this is all there is.